0: this is section thirty six of mark twain a biography volume two this librivox recording is in the public domain mark twain a biography by albert bigelow Payne, chapter one hundred and forty down the river osgood was doing no great things with the prince and the pauper but clemens gave him another book presently a collection of sketches the stolen white elephant It was not an especially important volume, though some of the features, such as Mrs. McWilliams and the Lightning and the Carnival of Crime, are among the best of their sort, while the elephant story is an amazingly good take-off on what might be called the spectacular detective. The interview between Inspector Blunt and the owner of the elephant is typical. The inspector asks, "'Now, what does this elephant eat, and how much?' Well, as to what he eats, he will eat anything. He will eat a man. He will eat a Bible. He will eat anything between a man and a Bible. Good, very good indeed. Uh, but too general. Uh, details are necessary. Details are the only valuable thing in our trade. Uh, very well. As to men, at one meal, or, if you prefer, uh, during one day, uh, how many men will he eat if fresh? Uh, he would not care whether they were fresh or not at a single meal he would eat five ordinary men very good five men we will put that down Uh, what nationalities would he prefer Uh, he is indifferent about nationalities he prefers acquaintances but is not prejudiced against strangers very good now as to bibles uh, how many bibles would he eat at a meal he would eat an entire edition clemens and osgood had a more important publishing enterprise on hand the long-deferred completion of the mississippi book was to be accomplished the long-deferred trip down the river was to be taken howells was going abroad but the charming osgood was willing to make the excursion and a young man named roswell phelps of hartford was engaged as a stenographer to take the notes Clemens made a farewell trip to Boston to see Howells before his departure, and together they went to Concord to call on Emerson, a fortunate thing, for he lived but a few weeks longer. They went again in the evening, not to see him, but to stand reverently outside and look at his house. This was in April. Longfellow had died in March. The fact that Howells was going away indefinitely made them reminiscent and sad just what breach clemens committed during this visit is not remembered now and it does not matter but his letter to howells after his return to hartford makes it pretty clear that it was memorable enough at the time halfway in it he breaks out but oh hell there is no hope for a person that is built like me because there is no cure no cure if i could only know when i have committed a crime then i could conceal it and not go stupidly dribbling it out circumstance by circumstance into the ears of a person who will give no sign till the confession is complete and then the sudden damnation drops on a body like the released pile-driver and he finds himself in the earth down to his chin when he merely supposed he was being entertaining next day he was off with osgood and the stenographer for st louis where they took the steamer gold dust down the river he intended to travel under an assumed name but was promptly recognized both at the southern hotel and on the boat in life on the mississippi He has given us the atmosphere of his trip, with his new impressions of old scenes, also his first interview with the pilot, whom he did not remember, but who easily remembered him. I did not write that story in the book, quite as it happened, he reflected once many years later. We went on board at night. Next morning I was up bright and early and out on deck to see if I could recognize any of the old landmarks. I could not remember any. I did not know where we were at all. It was a new river to me entirely. I climbed up in the pilot-house, and there was a fellow of about forty at the wheel. I said, Good morning. He answered pleasantly enough. His face was entirely strange to me. Then I sat down on the high seat back of the wheel and looked out at the river and began to ask a few questions, such as a landsman would ask. He began, in the old way, to fill me up with the old lies, and I enjoyed letting him do it. Then suddenly he turned around to me and said, I want a cup of coffee you hold her will you till i come back and before i could say a word he was out of the pilot house door and down the steps it all came so suddenly that i sprang to the wheel of course as i would have done twenty years before then in a moment i realized my position here i was with a great big steamboat in the middle of the mississippi river without any further knowledge than that fact and the pilot out of sight i settled my mind on three conclusions first that the pilot might be a lunatic second that he had recognized me and thought i knew the river third that we were in a perfectly safe place where I could not possibly kill the steamboat. But that last conclusion, though the most comforting, was an extremely doubtful one. I knew perfectly well that no sane pilot would trust his steamboat for a single moment in the hands of a greenhorn, unless he were standing by the greenhorn's side. Of course, by force of habit when i grabbed the wheel i had taken the steering marks ahead and astern and i made up my mind to hold her on those marks to the hair but i could feel myself getting old and gray then all at once i recognized where we were we were in what is called the grand chain a succession of hidden rocks one of the most dangerous places on the river there were two rocks there only about seventy feet apart and you've got to go exactly between them or wreck the boat there was a time when i could have done it without a tremor but that time wasn't now i would have given any reasonable sum have been on the shore just at that moment. I think I was about ready to drop dead when I heard a step on the pilot-house stair. Then the door opened and the pilot came in, quietly picking his teeth, and took the wheel, and I crawled weakly back to the seat. He said, You thought you were playing a nice joke on me, didn't you? you thought i didn't know who you were why i recognized that drawl of yours as soon as you opened your mouth i said who the hell are you i don't remember you well he said perhaps you don't but i was a cub pilot on the river before the war when you were a licensed pilot and i couldn't get a license when i was qualified for one because the pilots association was so strong at that time that they could keep new pilots out if they wanted to and the law was that i had to be examined by two licensed pilots and for a good while i could not get any one to make that examination but one day you and. Another pilot offered to do it, and you put me through a good, healthy examination and endorsed my application for a license. I had never seen you before, and I have never seen you since until now, but I recognized you. All right, I said, but if I had gone half a mile farther with that steamboat we might have all been at the bottom of the river we got to be good friends of course and i spent most of my time up there with him when we got down below cairo and there was a big full river for it was high water season and there was no danger of the boat hitting anything so long as she kept in the river i had her most of the time on his watch. He would lie down and sleep, and leave me there to dream that the years had not slipped away, that there had been no war, no mining days, no literary adventures, that I was still a pilot, happy and carefree as I had been twenty years before. From the book we gather that he could not keep out of the pilot house. He was likely to get up at any hour of the night to stand his watch, and truly enough the years had slipped away. He was the young fellow in his twenties again, speculating on the problems of existence and reading his fortune in the stars. To heighten the illusion, he had himself called regularly with the four o'clock watch in order not to miss the mornings. It will repay the reader to turn to Chapter 30 of Life on the Mississippi, And consider mark twain's word picture of the river sunrise the majesty and solitude of the river impressed him more than ever before especially its solitude it had been so full of life in his time now it had returned once more to its primal loneliness the loneliness of god at one place two steamboats were in sight at once an unusual spectacle once in the mouth of a river, he noticed a small boat, which he made out to be the Mark Twain. There had been varied changes in twenty-one years, only the old fascination of piloting remained unchanged. To Bixby afterward he wrote, I'd rather be a pilot than anything else I've ever done in my life. How do you run Plum Point? He met Bixby at New Orleans, Bixby was captain now on a splendid new anchor-line steamboat, the city of Baton Rouge. The anchor-line steamers were the acme of Mississippi River Steamboat Building, and they were about the end of it. They were imposingly magnificent, but they were only as gorgeous clouds that marked the sunset of Mississippi steamboat travel. Mark Twain made his trip down the river just in time. In New Orleans he met George W. Cable and Joel Chandler Harris, and they had a fraternizing good time together, mousing about the old French quarter or mingling with the social life of the modern city. He made a trip with Bixby in a tug to the Warmouth plantation, and they reviewed old days together as friends parted for twenty-one years' will. Altogether, the Norland's sojourn was a pleasant one, saddened only by a newspaper notice of the death in Edinburgh of the kindly and gentle and beloved Dr. Brown. Clemens arranged to make the trip up the river on the Baton Rouge. Bixby had one pretty inefficient pilot and stood most of the watches himself, so that, with Sam Clemens in the pilot-house with him, it was wonderfully like those old first days of learning the river back in the fifties. Sam was ever making notes in his memorable book, just as he always did, said Bixby to the writer, recalling the time. I was sorry I had to Stay at the wheel so much. I wanted to have some more time with Sam without thinking of the river at all. Sam was sorry, too, from what he wrote after he got home. Bixby produced a letter in the familiar handwriting. It was a tender, heart-spoken letter. I didn't see half enough of you. It was a sore disappointment. Osgood could have told you if he would, discreet old dog. I expected to have you with me all the time altogether the most pleasant part of my visit with you was after we arrived in st louis and you were your old natural self again twenty years have not added a month to your age or taken a fraction from your loveliness said bixby When we arrived in St. Louis, we came to the Planters Hotel, to this very table where you and I are sitting now, and we had a couple of hot scotches between us, just as we have now, and we had a good last talk over old times and old acquaintances. After he returned to New York, he sent for my picture. He wanted to use it in his book. At St. Louis, the travelers changed boats and proceeded up the Mississippi toward St. Paul. Clemens laid off three days at Hannibal. "'Delightful days,' he wrote home, loitering around all day long, examining the old localities, and talking with the grayheads, who were boys and girls with me thirty or forty years ago. I spent my nights with John and Helen Garth, three miles from town, in their spacious and beautiful house. They were children with me, and afterward schoolmates. That world which I knew in its blooming youth is old and bowed and melancholy now. Its soft cheeks are leathery and withered. The fire has gone out of its eyes, the spring from its step. It will be dust and ashes when I come again. He had never seen the far upper river, and he found it very satisfying. His notebook says, The bluffs all along up above St. Paul are exquisitely beautiful, where the rough and broken turreted rocks stand up against the sky above the steep verdant slopes. They are inexpressibly rich and mellow in color. Soft dark browns mingled with dull greens, the very tints to make an artist worship. In a final entry, he wrote The romance of boating is gone now. In Hannibal, the steamboat man is no longer the god. End of chapter one hundred and forty. Down the River, read by John Greenman.